Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Well, my dear friends, welcome to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I'm happy to announce that we have officially begun the season of Lent. And uh, for many of us, it uh, sneaks up on on us where uh, we just all of a sudden said, oh, I better get to the church for uh, Ash Wednesday and to receive my ashes. So uh, we're here. And I know people ask me all the time, what are you reading during the season of Lent? And I always recommend Bishop Sheen. Uh, The book, it's simply titled, The Seven Last Words of Christ Explained. Uh, Some people call it The Seven Last Words Explained. Is a collection of Sheen's writings on the seven last words. I believe there's nine books in total uh, that he wrote uh, in the book. So, great value for your money. You know, it's around $20, uh, but it's the perfect Lenten read. So I'll look that up, The Seven Last Words of Christ Explained by Fulton Sheen. And it's available on the Amazon platform. So it doesn't matter if you're listening in Australia, the United Kingdom, the United States of America, or Canada. You can find it on the Amazon platform nearest you. And so, again, Fulton Sheen is a Again, an excellent uh, choice for all things Lent, so I'll leave that with you. All right, we are going to now share some of Sheen's writings on the seven last words, and uh, he takes us on a spiritual journey. Uh, He'll be talking about uh, the first word from the cross today, uh, with the uh, subject matter being, am I sick or am I a sinner? Uh, He'll also give us a reflection on how do we take pain. Um, And then, of course, he'll finish off with a a question that he's asking us, do I need the feminine in religion? So uh, lots in today's program, so you're going to enjoy it. So uh, may I invite you just to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Sheen, as he takes us on a journey uh, to the cross. Please enjoy. My dear friends of Christ and Him crucified, you may remember from Shakespeare the famous speech of Mark Anthony over Caesar. He said, I will show you sweet Caesar's wounds. Poor, poor, dumb mouths, and bid them speak for me. Instead of showing you Caesar's wounds, I shall show you the wounds of Christ, who is both God and man, the only one who ever came to this earth to die and to conquer it. 
You and I came into the world to live. He came into the world to offer his life for us. And so he founded a new type of religion. All other religions, without exception, go from man to God. Either by contemplation or by a kind of mortification and self-denial or the eightfold path of Buddha. But with our blessed Lord, religion comes from God to man. We need help. In particularly redemption from sin. Now what happened before the crucifixion? It's too long to tell except in symbolic language. I shall tell it to you in terms of sounds. Not often does one hear sounds like those which accompany the death of Christ. One, the smack of lips. When Judas threw his arms around the neck of our blessed Lord and blistered his lips with a kiss. Then there was also the clanking of coins when Judas took back the 30 pieces of silver, sent them rolling over the temple floor, and said, I have betrayed innocent blood. The crowing of a cock. As Peter boasted the night of the Last Supper, that though others would deny our Lord, he would not. And yet our Lord said, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. The splashing of water. When Pilate, who knew that our blessed Lord was innocent, called for a bowl of water, and dipped his hands into the water, and holding them aloft, the water dripping from them like jewels in that morning sunlight, and said, See, see, I'm innocent of the blood of this man. And finally, there was one other sound. The thud of a hammer on nails. We go to Calvary, and we await the seven words that our Lord spoke from the cross, almost like seven funeral dirges, and with the beginning of the sound comes his last words. A question that is worth asking in our American culture is this, are you sick? Or are you a sinner? It is not very likely that you would call yourself a sinner in the modern age. To 
Today people are sick. Are we going to a psychiatrist because we've committed adultery? Are we visiting a mental therapist because we're a homosexual? Are we being treated by a psychologist because we've been dishonest? It used to be that we Catholics were the only ones who believed in the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now almost everyone in America believes he is immaculately conceived. There are no sinners. We are not responsible. We are not guilty. We may have an Oedipus complex, an Electra complex. Maybe our parents were poor. Or we were raised on grade B milk. Or there were not sufficient playgrounds in our neighborhood. But a sinner, that we could never be. Hence, in a trial of one of the presidents of the United States, it was generally admitted that he had made a mistake. There was no such thing as guilt. As a matter of fact, in the official declarations of the presidents of the United States, from George Washington up to the present day, the word sin was used only by one president, and that was Lincoln in 1863. In that proclamation, Lincoln said that we have offended divine providence and are guilty of sin. No other president ever used the word sin except Eisenhower. And then he did not use it as his own. He quoted this particular speech of Abraham Lincoln. It is therefore no wonder that a great psychiatrist like Carl Menninger has written a book, Whatever Became of Sin. He said the ministers of the priest no longer talk about it. So the lawyers and the jurists picked it up and it became a crime. Then they dropped it, and psychology picked it up, and it became a complex. Now, why is our blessed Lord on the cross at this particular moment? Why did he come to this earth? If you search the scriptures, you will find there was only one reason why our blessed Lord came in order to do away with sin. He took our sins upon himself, as if he were guilty. 
all the prophecies about him, particularly Isaiah, speak of him as being made one with the transgressors, identifying himself with sinners. And how did he take sin upon himself? Well, because he's the new Adam. You see, we have received an inheritance, not of uh, intensified evil, but a weakness from the first Adam. Now, the second Adam, Christ, came, and he starts a new humanity. In order to do that, he must blot out sin. So he becomes our stand-in, our representative. He takes our place as if he were guilty of blasphemy, as if he were the sinner, very much like, well, imagine a judge having before him his own son who committed murder. He killed a boy. Now, there's no doubt whatever of the son's guilt. Well, the father judge, bound to execute justice, sentences his son to death. That is justice. Then he says to the son, now I will take your place. I will die for you. That would be mercy. But that is not the complete picture. Suppose that at the moment the son was sentenced to death. The boy that the son had murdered walked in alive. Well, the son would say, how can you condemn me of, of murder? You see, I killed this boy. See, he's alive. I'm innocent. I should be free. That's precisely the condition that we are in. We were guilty of sin when our Lord rises from the dead takes our guilt upon himself, washes it away, we can say, see, he's alive. He's not dead. I'm free. So that's why he came. Now, that is why when our Lord goes to Calvary and extends his hands to the executioners and the rough nail is applied to the palm of his hand, from which the world's graces flow, at the very moment the blood is shed, what does he say? The high priestly prayer, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It was addressed to the Heavenly Father. The plea was ignorance. If we knew what we were doing, for example, when we crucified the Son of God, we would never be saved. It's only the fact that we are ignorant of what we have done that brings us within the pale of the hearing of that cry. But the important point is that he spoke of forgiveness the moment he began shedding his blood. Because here we touch on a very vital word in Scripture. 
without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Without the shedding of blood. Not just good works. The shedding of blood. Why is the shedding of blood required? Well, because sin is in the blood. It's in every alley and gateway of the body. It's in the body of the syphilitic. It's in the body of the diseased. It would almost seem, therefore, if we are to get rid of sin, we have to pour it out. But there's another reason. Life had to be forfeited for our sins. And no life was more precious than God who became man, because his blood was the blood of the God-man. And therefore, he paid the infinite price. We were not bought with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. That is how our sins are forgiven. And that is why our blessed Lord prayed. At the moment that he poured out his blood for us sinners. Now, many of you have the faith. Now is the time to go to confession. Get rid of your sins. When the priest raises his hand in absolution over you, the blood of Christ is dripping from his fingers. We priests are hardly conscious of this great power. I think we would almost be shocked to death if we ever realized it. But that is how the sin is absolved. By this blood of Christ. So bring your sins to the confessional box. Or if you have not been blessed with the fullness of faith, There's something else that can be done. Buy a book. And by a book, I mean the crucifix. Did you know that your life has been written? The crucifix is your autobiography. The parchment is skin. The pen, the nails. The ink is blood. There is not a single sin that we have ever committed that cannot be read in that book. Sins of pride, the head crowned with thorns, sins of avarice and dishonesty. He had to have his hand 
riven with steel. All the times we wandered from grace and went away from the path and way of righteousness, he had to have his feet fastened to a cross. For all false loves, the pure side, the sins of the eyes, blood in his eyes, flies buzzing about them, sins of hearing, sins of taste, sins of lust, flesh hanging from him like purple rags. Every single sin is there. And if we got into the habit of looking at that crucifix every day and thinking of those words, Father, forgive, we would come to a deeper understanding of the blood of Christ. I have in my bedroom, just opposite my bed, a very large crucifix that's over six feet high. It's the first thing that I look at every morning, and the last thing that I look at every night. And in that way I read my life. I do not need to wait for a biographer. It is already there. And one of the conditions of receiving the full pardon of our blessed Lord is that we pardon others. As he forgave our sins, we have to forgive the sins of others. Uh, one of the peak and most exalted descriptions of that that I ever read was about a Russian bishop who not very long ago was sentenced to death by the communist authorities in Russia. And his last prayer for his communist executioners was this. He said, Heavenly Father, I offer up for the sins of these men and for my own sins the death of your son." But I also forgive my executioners, as you forgive me. And so on Judgment Day, when these men stand before you, the angels will ask, what charge is brought against these men? There will be no one to charge them with guilt. They are already forgiven. Thomas More, in his death, said somewhat the same thing. There were a couple of fallen priests who came to see him. He said, I will ask the good Lord to forgive you, and then you will not be accused but we will all meet very merrily in heaven. This, then, is the message of the first word.
you are a sinner. Now, you may have mental troubles and all that. That's for the business of psychiatrists. Believe me, there are many people today who are being treated for mental troubles that are only the superficial manifestation of moral guilt in the human soul. And until they get rid of that, they will have all the psychic effects of guilt. One of the archbishops of France, the archbishop of Paris some years ago, was preaching a sermon and he said, Years ago, some boys came into Notre Dame Cathedral and they stood outside of a confessional box and they bet one another. Who is brave enough to go in and make a mock confession? And we will give ten francs to anyone who does it. One boy said he would go in and make a mock confession. So he went in and made a mock confession. He was given a penance. Came out, he asked for the ten francs, and they said, well, you haven't said your penance. You must have received one. What is your penance? So he walked up to the communion rail. He knelt before a crucifix, and he raised his fist, and he said to our Lord on the cross, You died for me, but I don't give up! He couldn't finish it. And the archbishop concluded the sermon, saying, I am that boy. Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed that first reflection uh, from Archbishop Sheen titled, Am I Sick or Am I a Sinner? And I know you'll enjoy this second reflection today on the topic of pain. And so uh, I think Fulton Sheen will uh, give us a few answers of how do I take pain? And uh, again, we'll be better for it. So please enjoy. One of life's great scandals is pain. not only in ourselves, but in others. The poet has asked a rather tantalizing question about it. He said, Must all thy harvest fields be dunged with rotten death? In other words, before there can be a harvest and a crop, must there be the fertilization of death spread upon it? Thompson imagines a kind of a legendary weed called the amaranthine weed. And he asks God, is thy love an amaranthine weed that suffers no flowers to mount except its own? So pain will always be a trouble to the human mind as well as to the human body. How did our Lord look upon it? When he went into the Garden of Gethsemane on Holy Thursday night, there was an alternative presented to him. The alternative of the sword and the cup. 
He would now take into his hands the cup of all the world's sins to drink it. The word cup is used about 20 times in scripture, and only in a few instances is it used as a blessing. For example, my cup overfloweth. That's the one we always hear. But most often, the cup is filled with dregs. And our blessed Lord has before him, as it were, this cup of all the world's sin, which he will drink to its very dregs, in order that no other Redeemer would be needed. And as he abandons himself to his Father's will, coming down on this moonlit night is a band of about 200 led by Judas. Peter takes out a sword to defend our blessed Lord. And he swings the sword rather wildly, maybe at Judas and his cohorts. But the best that he could do was to hack off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And our Lord said to Peter, put the sword back again into its scabbard. They who take the sword will perish by the sword. Shall I not drink the cup my father gave? My father? Not Pilate? Not Herod? Not you and me? Not the people? Is this the cup the loving Father gives? That's precisely the point. All pains, all trials of life pass through God's hands first before they ever come to us. Before Satan could strike Job, God reviewed the punishments that Satan would visit upon Job and said, you may touch everything except his soul. And so our blessed Lord is saying that the pains that we have are seen and known by the Father. That was the way he looked on pain. Now when we come to Calvary, here are three crosses. Pain, pain, pain. The Roman execution was considered the cruelest punishment that could ever be visited upon man. So cruel was it that the Romans would never allow a Roman to be crucified. Cicero said Roman eyes should never even look upon the crucifixion. When our blessed Lord was about five or seven, there were 2,000 of the Jews that were crucified within 10 miles of Nazareth. So he must have seen the crucifixion in those days. And crosses were erected first. Now the cross is the symbol of pain. The most absurd thing in all the world is a cross. Just a bare cross.
because it is composed of the vertical bar of life crossed by the horizontal bar of death. That's absurdity. It's our own will negated by other wills. No wonder Sartre said, my neighbor is hell. How are you ever going to overcome pain? There's only one way that pain can be handled, and that is by looking at this scene. For as we regard the three crosses, and particularly our blessed Lord in the middle, he took this absurd symbol of the cross, put himself upon it, and solved that enigma of life and death. And he solved it this way, he made death the condition of life. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Good Friday, the condition of Easter Sunday. Crown of thorns, the condition of the halo of light. Scourge body, the condition of the glorified body. You die with him, you rise with him. In other words, how did he conquer pain? He used it as a means of attaining glory. And here is the answer to those who ask, well, does God know anything about pain? Does God know what I suffer? Did God ever have a migraine headache? As if his head was crowned with thorns? Does God know anything about the wounded hands and feet that are brought into the accident wards of hospitals? Does God know anything about the starvation in India, Latin America? Did he ever go without food for two days? Or three? Or five? Does he know anything about thirst? Does God know anything about homelessness? Was he ever without a home? Does he know what it is to be a refugee? To flee from one country to another? Does he know what it is to be in jail? To be the victims of scourging? Does God know any of these things? Yes. God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now, for our disobedience, there had to be some payment made. And it's not easy to obey. Obey is a pain. If you have the right to order me, and you say to me, take three steps to your left, and I take three steps to my right instead of to my left, I disobey you. Then I say, will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. Then I have to put my foot down three times in pain with the three times I put it down in disobedient egotism. So it took pain to atone for our disobedience. As our blessed Lord, therefore, hangs on the cross, here on either side of him are they're called thieves. The Gospel of Luke in the original Greek calls them lestes. Do you know what they were? Guerrilla fighters. They were battling the Romans. The Romans had the 
had the Jews under subjection. And these were loyal citizens of Jerusalem who did everything they could to overcome the Roman rule. And they knew about the Messiah. And they both blasphemed at the beginning. Both ridiculed our Lord. Then there's a change. And finally, one on the left interprets the goodness of God. And he believes in the Messiah. He said, if you are the Messiah, if you are the Son of God, save yourself and save us. We're almost reaching a condition in this country where we're much more interested in healing than in forgiveness. When it will be the forgiveness that will produce the real healing. And that was all he wanted. He wanted to be taken down. Why? Well, to go on with the dirty business of a guerrilla war. And the one on the other side changed his attitude. And first of all, he recognizes something that we all have to recognize in pain, that we all receive less pain than we deserve. And he said, he rebuked the other thief, saying, we suffer justly for our sins. And he proclaimed the innocence of our Lord. This man has done no wrong. And finally, he asked for pardon. And what faith that man on the right had. Here he looks at one crucified like himself, one whom he blasphemed a few minutes before. And this crown of thorns is to him a crown of glory. His purple is his royal installation. The nail is his scepter, the cross is his throne, and he's the owner of a kingdom. And he asks, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The one on the other side asked to be taken down. This one asked to be taken up. When our Lord went to heaven, his escort was the man on the right. We may never presume. One of the thieves did not ask for pardon. We may never despair. One of them was forgiven. And watching then this drama of pain on Calvary, we not only will offer it up for our own sins, but we will recognize that though love does not kill pain, love can minimize it. If you lose your person, a poor needy person finds it, your loss is softened. Whenever I pass a hospital, and there's one hospital I pass whenever I go near the place I live, I always say a prayer for everyone in the hospital. And the tragedy to me is wasted pain. Here they are suffering. 
in intensive care, too. And there's no one they love for whom they can offer up their pains. But when we love, we can endure anything. And it leads us to eternal life. There was a doctor in the southern part of this country who took care of poor Mexican mothers and children became engaged and the young woman prepared a pre-engagement party but the night of the party the young doctor was called to care for a Mexican woman who was dying in childbirth he did not go to the party he saved the mother and he also saved the child and the girl broke off the engagement when the doctor died after living in poverty he had his office always above a a grocery store with a sign down below that his office was on the second floor. People wondered how he could ever be repaid for what he had done. And then finally they remembered. They took the sign off the grocery store at the foot of the stairs and they put it on his coffin. And everyone who saw his name plate understood what his life of pain had brought him to. Dr. Updike, Upstairs. You are listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now return to Bishop Sheen Presents with your host, Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, thank you for joining me for uh, this time of the year when we uh, look towards the cross and uh, have our good teacher, Archbishop Sheen, uh, explain uh, the meaning of the cross. And so he's uh, unpacking these seven last words of Christ from the cross and applying them to our everyday lives. And I tell you, I, I, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, a great book to pick up during the Lenten season is the book, The Seven Last Words of Christ Explained by Fulton Sheen. Uh, it includes nine of his books that he wrote on the topic of The Seven Last Words, and it's available on all the Amazon platforms, no matter what country you live in. And I want to uh, say hello to all of those listening uh, on Radio Maria Canada, Radio Maria USA, Radio Maria Australia, and now we've added uh, to our lineup uh, the good um, souls in the United Kingdom. And so those uh, listening on Radio Maria Ireland and Radio Maria England, welcome uh, to uh, Bishop Sheen Presents. And so uh, thank you for joining us. So we will now enjoy this third reflection. And the question that uh, Archbishop Sheen is proposing to us this time is, do I need the feminine in religion. Please enjoy. Suppose you visited a friend, and though his mother was living, he never once mentioned her name. There were no photographs of his mother about the house. When there was a party, he would never invite the mother. He never openly slighted her. He just ignored her. 
you would have found the mother very charming. Now I wonder if the Lord does not look upon some of us Christians the same way. The Lord has many Christian houses scattered throughout the country. You go into his house, you never see an image of his mother. No one in the pulpit ever mentions her name. No songs are ever sung to her. Is there shame of the mother? Why is she so ignored? Well, one of the excuses he might give is that, well, we who love the mother make too much of a fuss over her, as if one could fuss too much over a mother. But let us see how our blessed Lord looked on his mother. First of all, he made her. You and I never made our mother. Our blessed Lord, therefore, could make her the most perfect mother who ever lived. Because he pre-existed her and he thought of her from all eternity. Furthermore, when the good Lord came to this earth, he came through her portals, no one else's. And then he quickly associated her with his mission because the gifts brought by the Magi were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold because he was a king, incense because he was a priest, and myrrh because he would die, die for our sins. It was a terrible reminder to a mother of the mission that she had on this life. And then when she is presented to the temple, and she presents him rather to the temple, Simeon, the old priest, tells her that a sword is going to transfix the hearts of both. Say, so were they were united, therefore, by a sword. Just as you cannot go to a marble statue of a mother holding a babe and carve away the babe without destroying the mother. And so here both of them were made one. And then flight into Egypt. They were refugees together. Nazareth, 30 years obedience. What greater tribute? Can you imagine a 30-year-old man thinking that much of his mother that up until that age he obeys her? And at the marriage feast of Cana, he tells her that she is going to be associated with him in the hour, which will be the hour of his death, and now at the cross. Here she is, at the cross with John, with Magdalene, and possibly one other woman. And our blessed Lord looks down from the cross, and he does something with his mother that you and I cannot do because our bonds are only fleshy, and we cannot surrender that which is of the flesh. But John, who was there, is called the disciple, not John. 
So as a disciple, he stands for all of us. All of us who love the good Lord. We're his disciples. Mary is the called the woman. The universal mother. So he now, from the cross, says to his mother, Woman, there's your son. In other words, our blessed Lord is telling his mother that we are all her children. And to the disciple, there's your mother. Not by a figure of speech, not by a metaphor, by in virtue of the pangs of childbirth, she became the mother of us all. Why then, in this day and age, where there's so much made about the feminine, is there nothing said about the feminine? Maybe she could teach us about liberation. Liberation is not only from something, it's for something. From without a for is meaningless. A rich man went up to a taxi driver. He said, are you free? The taxi driver said, yes. Rich man left shouting, or offer freedom. It was crazy unless he had a purpose. So liberation is not only from something, but for something. Now Mary can teach us for. Now there was another woman who lived at the same time as the Blessed Mother, who believed in the wrong kind of liberation. She believed, first of all, in liberation from a husband, so she could have as many men as she wanted. And that was Herodiad. Secondly, she didn't believe in moral training for her children, where she taught her daughter to be a temptress. And thirdly, she hated religion because she beheaded John the Baptist. Now, that's not the kind of liberation that our Blessed Mother stood for. Notice the liberation that she stood for. What was it for? First of all, for life. Here is a young woman who is so poor, she has nothing but doves to offer at the temple. There's no housing. For a childbirth, she's got to go to a stable. There's the shame associated with a virgin bearing a child. And with all of that poverty and all of that shame, should she have aborted? No, she believed in liberation for life. She believed in liberation for justice. What greater declaration of justice is there than Magnificat of Our Lady? Speaking of exalting the poor and exalting the humble, this is the liberation of justice, and then the liberation of equity. She's not only just for equality, she's beyond that, equity. Equity handles all the cases that are beyond justice. Men have handled a just world and not handled it too well. So there was a statue and charter of Our Lady of, of equity. And on either side of the Cathedral of Chartres were great windows, one series of windows donated by the family of Pierre de Dreux, and on the other side the windows donated by Blanche of Castile. They were rival families, and in the center sat, sat the Lady of Equity, reconciling the families. 
This is the liberation. And not only is she a boon for women, but she's a boon for men in this technological age when men are governed by utility and by eroticism. There's need of the ideal feminine. Man says, I want a woman. He doesn't want a woman. He wants an apparatus that will relieve him. But there ought to be an ideal for men. That unpossessed that leaves possession vain. That beauty. Hers is a face whence all should copied be. Did God make replicas such as she? Just as soon as men see a fine, noble woman, then they're inspired. This is the ideal that is missing from our civilization. And this is what our blessed Lord commended and asked for from the cross. And then she's the refuge of sinners. After all, she knows what sin is. Sin is loss of God. She lost her divine son for three days. So she knows what sin is. Say the rosary every day. Love that woman. Let's restore the feminine in life. The real feminine. So that as her children we'd say, lovely lady dressed in blue, teach me how to pray. God was just your little boy. Tell me what to say. Did you lift him up sometimes? Gently on your knee? Did you sing to him the way mother does to me? Did you ever try telling him stories of the world and, oh, did he cry? Do you think he cares if I tell him things? Just little things that happen. And do angels' wings make a noise? Can he hear me if I speak low? Does he understand me now? Tell me, for you know, lovely lady dressed in blue, teach me how to pray. God was just your little boy, and you know the way. Well, my dear Radio Maria family, there you have it. Uh, Again, three beautiful reflections from Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen to uh, help us begin the season of Lent. And I think that very familiar poem that he just recited, Lovely Lady Dressed in Blue, Teach Us How to Pray, uh, is really one of our favorites here at Radio Maria. And, uh, of course, we uh, invite you to uh, pray the rosary every day and to go to the Blessed Virgin Mary for help. 
Uh, one of the titles of her is that she is the refuge of sinners, and we are all sinners. And so I would invite you to join me, of course, next week as we continue this Lenten journey together. Uh, again, recommending that you uh, purchase a Bishop Sheen book or two to uh, help you journey during the season of Lent. Um, please visit our website, bishopsheentoday.com. And there you'll find uh, hundreds of videos, audio recordings, and uh, again, a full um, complement of the books that Foldenstein wrote. And uh, he wrote over 60 of them, so there's lots to choose from. Uh, but the website again, bishopsheentoday.com. All right, look forward to uh, being with you next week. And so until that time, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you.